0: Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, that was a little weak, but we'll try it again. You know, here's what I want you to I want you all to act like that I'm at a black church, okay? <laughs> Can you all do that? Can you all be black for about, for about 30 minutes? Good morning. Good morning. All right. Now, you all getting a little bit better now. Praise God. Amen. We thank God for you. We're glad to be here. We're, we're just... We're excited whether the trees are tall and all that kind of stuff. In Texas, you know, depends on where you are, there may not be any trees at all. So we just, we're glad to be here with you. Um, I know that y'all, y'all, y'all suffered through Diego. And uh, you didn't have it bad as Mary and I had it, I'll tell you, believe me. But uh, thank you for loving on my son. And uh, he, he talks about being here, talks about you guys so much. And he said, Pop, you just got to go. Those folks are just awesome. And, uh, and so we're here. So we're, we're now enjoying some of the benefits of what God uh, is doing with this relationship. I want you to watch this video to kind of give you a little jump start on a little bit of what happened a few years ago. are thirty thousand children that are in the foster care system today in the state of texas there are half a million children that are in the u.s that's in the foster care system and i said who would stand with me today for these kids that day nedra wade she stood and raised her hand and she said pastor i will And then another person stood and said, I will. And another stood and said, I will. And another stood and said, I will. Well, after the process started in our church and family after family, within three months, 39 children were placed in families in our church. What if there was more families waiting for children than children waiting for families? So we call Child Protective Services. And they said if that happens in any county, that will be the first ever glorious as that video just kind of summed it up. Believe me. Let me just kind of tell you a little bit uh, what kind of spurred us to what we call now all for the one. All for the one. We believe that God has called the church, the body of Christ, to be the answer to the orphan care crisis. If everybody in here would say we're going to be all for the one child that needs rescuing, that needs love, that needs the kind of care that they deserve because they are born, amen, as people that are made in the image of God, all for the one. Everybody's not called to foster and everybody's not called to adopt. Matter of fact, I wonder about some folks who even have natural birth. <laughs> but everybody is called to do something. Everybody's called to do something. So. Uh, let me kind of tell you a little bit about our journey. And they have a picture there of of, of Mary and, uh, now Mary is my first wife. Uh, honey, raise your hand there. She's my, she's my first wife. She was the best one. Uh, she was the only one, for those of you that don't know. And so uh, uh, Mary and, uh, and I have been married better than 40 some odd years. And uh, and uh, we just thank God for what God was doing in our lives. We had six biological children, and, uh, and then in, in the six biological children, Anna was the baby, and so we took Anna off to college, and uh, you know, and she was the last one. We took her off to college, and we as she got out of the car, we loaded up everything, packed her dorm out and everything, and then she came back to the car, and embraced us, and we act like we were crying and all that kind of stuff. We went home and, and, and there we were. Uh, we had 18 months of an empty nest. 18 months of an How many empty nesters are in here? Now, if your kids are not in here, aren't you enjoying it? Isn't that wonderful? Woo! Isn't that wonderful? We had 18 months of an empty nest. Amen. No kids. But let me tell you what happened. One day, I was bivocational pastoring there in a little town called Brownwood, Texas, in a small church uh, there in Brownwood. And as I was there in my office, beginning of school, I was a counselor. A kid walks in my door, sits down in a desk, uh, in a chair right in front of my desk. As he was sitting there, I looked up and I said, Where's your pass? And and he said, Well, here's the pass from the principal. I said, Why are you here? And he said, Well, I'm not going to class. I don't care who you are. You can't make me go to class. And I said, Well, I'm not the make her go to class tour. And uh, so I was wondering, why would the principal send him to me? I'm not a, a, a assistant principal. I don't handle discipline. And there was a kid named Melvin sitting in a chair in front of my desk. As he sat there, I said, now, Melvin, why are you here? He said, I've had those courses that they're trying to enroll me in, and I'm not going to go back and do them again. He said, do you know how old I'll be if I... Take those classes again. He said, I am not going to be here when I'm 20. And I said, well, Melvin, let me see what's going on. In the process, I found out that Melvin had been in five different high schools. Melvin was a, in the ninth grade according to his transcript, but he was supposed to have been the second semester sophomore. So in the process, we sat there, first period went by, second period, on into lunch. He said, hey, uh, aren't you going to let me go to lunch? And I said, no, Melvin. He said, why? I said, because you're not enrolled. you won't go to class, you don't have a lunch period. Then the second lunch a bell rang. He said, I'm hungry. Oh, we can't because you won't go to class, you don't have a lunch period. By that time, my stomach began to growl. I said, let's go grab a hamburger. We leave, we go up to the nearest Dairy Queen, we grab a hamburger. Through that process, I found out that Melvin and all of his siblings have been placed in the system. Melvin went into the system when he was nine years old. He bounced from home to home to home. Melvin came into our area, and in our area is where we saw the dynamics and understood the dynamics for the first time. I understood the dynamics of what was called Child Protective Services. Because Melvin was in my school and because he needed the, the right transcript that was a problem getting, I was then assigned to Melvin. Well, we went back to the school and on the way back in, I decided to walk Melvin through the football uh, locker room. It's something about Football, smelling socks, and a stinky locker room that makes a football player just want to go out and just hit somebody. <laughs> you half at least know what I'm talking about. So Melvin said, hey, do you think if I go to class I can play football? I said, well, Melvin, I don't know, but we'll see. I walk him back out by the coach's office. And walking by the coach's office, and coach came out and saw Melvin's biceps and triceps. He said, hey, you got a football player for me? I said, ah, coach, I don't know. He said, why not? I said, because he won't before I can get it out, and Melvin hunches me in the side. (laughs) He didn't want me to say he won't go to class. We go on, Melvin said, hey, I'll go to class if you get me in football. But I wasn't satisfied with getting Melvin in class if he had credits. I called every school, and I kind of threatened them a little bit. I said, this kid's going to be your dropout if you don't get me something so I can get this kid in the right grade. We, we then patched his transcript together. Passed this six weeks. with we that six weeks, averaged them together. We got Melvin in the right class. We got Melvin in class, got him in football. Melvin had a banner year that year. Melvin got a little girlfriend. Everything going wonderful. Great year. The next year rolls around. The inevitable happens. Child Protective Services called the school and said, you know, Melvin Johnson, talked to the school, we're coming to get him. His placement has broken down. The office calls me and said, hey, Melvin is going to be leaving because something happened with his placement. Well, in in the middle of that year before, Melvin made my office his locker. Now, he had a locker, but my office became his locker. So he'd come into my emergency entry door. Now, uh, we know what emergency exit is, but I had emergency entry door for kids that really didn't want to go through through all the, the, the uh, secretaries and the passes to get to me. they come in my emergency. Well, Melvin would use it every day. He'd come in, he'd get in my snacks, and, and he'd get in everything. It, it was his office that he used as a locker. This afternoon, that afternoon, was a a banner year at time for me and Melvin. Let me tell you what happened. After Melvin had heard that he was going to leave because the caseworker got there before I did, because of the breakdown of his placement, Melvin burst out the door, ran down to the side of the building, across the practice field, and down the back street. Melvin had run away because he knew that again and again and again, he was going to be moved. Late that evening, I was there, an athletic event was going on. I was administrator on duty. Melvin came in my emergency entry door. It was dusk dark. Melvin came in and he sat in the same seat that he sat in the first day that he came into my office. He looked at me and I looked at him what seemed to be 30 minutes, but it probably wasn't even 30 seconds. I couldn't tell the tears from the perspiration. Melvin looked at me, and he said these words that was on the screen. He said, Brother Blake, will you help me? The reason why I'm here this morning is because of those words. I had never experienced a 16-year-old foster youth saying, will you help me? I had been where I had been ministering to prison ministry, death and dying, marriage counseling, all those things. But never a child that did not have a home, that did not have a family, that did not have someone to say, I'm coming for you So you can be part of our family. Melvin said, will you help me? I don't know how many children are in this county. If they could speak today, they would ask this church, will you help me? I really didn't know what to say. But I said this. I said, Melvin... Man, I'd love to. I said, if I could, I'd take you home with me. Melvin raised his face up and he looked at me. Big smile came on his face. He said, really? I said, in a heartbeat. He said, really? I said, yeah. I said, well, Melvin, you have to go with the caseworker. They're gonna come back and you have to go with them. He said, no problem, I'm going. I said, now, Melvin, I'm going to call them, and they're going to come back. And you have to go with them. No problem, I'll go. I said, wait a minute, Melvin. I'm going to walk you out there. You're going to get in the car, and you're going to drive away with them, right? He said, I got it. I'm going. I called. They came. I walked Melvin out to the curb. Melvin gets in the car. I watched the taillights as it drove down off the campus of the high school, down the road, and I watched it all the way to the end of the street. Something had happened to me that I couldn't explain. Six months later, I get a phone call. Are you Aaron Blake? I said, yes. Do you know Melvin Johnson? Yes. I said, Melvin Johnson wants to come back to Brownwood High School. And I said, great. Said so he wants to get back on the football team. I said, great. Said he has a little girlfriend he wants to see. I said, yes. Said he said that you said that he can come live with you. <laughs> I rewound the tape. The, the, just the, Did I say that? And I remember I said, if I could, you could come live with me. But now the reason why I didn't say you could come live with me, because I was thinking about those 18 months of an empty nest. (laughs) And I was thinking about the little girl that I live with, too. I said, can I call you in the morning? They said, yes, I hung up. And when I hung up, I began to rehearse what I was going to say to Mary When I got home, to asked her, could a 16-year-old come to live with us? I started down, I said, no, that won't work. All the way home, I rehearsed. When I got home, Mary was there, and she had supper ready, so we, we, I sat down. Usually, I'm regurgitating my day to her, but that day, she was just going 100 miles an hour with all kinds of things, and I wasn't hearing any of it because I was thinking about, I got to ask her, can a 16-year-old come to live with us? Finally, I said, Mary, guess what happened to me today? She said, what? I said, this kid named Melvin Johnson, she said, I know little Melvin. I said, he said that I said that he could come live with us. <laughs> what do you think about that, Mary? <laughs> and she said these words, I hope you said yes. 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 Now, I almost fell out of my seat, to tell you the truth. But I couldn't wait till 8 o'clock came the next morning to call the caseworker. I called it right at 8 o'clock and got voicemail. I called back. I got a hold of her. And I said, hey, we're ready. We want Melvin to come to live with us. We're excited about it. Amen. And uh, so we're ready. When can he come? And she said, well, Mr. Blake, are you a licensed foster parent? I said, where do you buy those at? <laughs> Not quite, but almost. I had no clue of how I was going to go about getting Melvin there. So we finally found out. We went through the process pretty quickly, and Melvin comes to live with us. Melvin gets back on the football team. Melvin gets back with the little girl. Everything going great. And one day, I walked out to the field, like I normally do every afternoon. I get out of my office. I walk over to the field. Melvin's there. He runs over to the side as they were working out. He said, hey, Pop. I said, hey, Melvin. He said, I want you to meet somebody. I said, okay. He said, this is Buck. I said, hey, Buck. He said, Pop, Buck's a foster kid. (laughs) I said, okay, hey, Buck foster kid. He said, Buck, Buck lost his placement, Pop. I told him, don't worry about it. We're going to take care of him. <laughs> Buck comes to live with us. Just a, just a few weeks later, a few weeks when I'm back out on the, on, at, the, at the practice field. Diego, uh, Buck uh, uh, runs up to me with Melvin and said, hey, Pop, hey, we want you to meet Joseph. I said, hey, <laughs> Joseph. He said, Joseph's a foster kid. I know. I said, I know. <laughs> we told him, don't worry about it. We got it taken care of. So guess what? Joseph comes to live with us. And Joseph is, is, is the tight end. Buck was the fullback. Diego, I mean, uh, Melvin was the running back. So you got to get how he wanted the office to stay intact. Just a few days later, Child Protective Services calls us. And I said, hello. He said, how are the boys doing? They're doing great. He said, you know, we really love to keep siblings together. (laughs) And he said, and and Diego has a brother. I mean, Buck has a brother, which name was Diego. And so Diego comes to live with Who Diego, who you know. And believe me, we know him better. So six boys later, we have a full house again with boys. Now, I'm going to tell you something. These boys would eat a cow a day. <laughs> they could put it down. There are many stories that I could tell you. Many I can tell you. But, uh, you know, they, somehow after they left, we found out that they had the keys to every one of our vehicles. How do you get keys that haven't made, and we don't know about it? Well, they found out how. But let me tell you this one story. There was a story that, that really changed the course of Mary and I's life to what we believe that we are ambassadors, for the orphans, for the rest of our lives. Why are we ambassadors? The word of God said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away and behold, all things have, have become new. And the scripture says on down further in Corinthians is that, that we need to be messengers or ambassadors of Christ. The ambassador message ought to be the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us because we were alienated and we were orphans. But God said that he would not leave us as orphans. What if the church decide that they're going to have from being an orphan that you're going to look at orphans and say, we're not going to leave you as an orphan. So let me tell you what happened to Mary and I in the process of us finding out and figuring out what was God doing. On one night, when Melvin comes and knocks on the door and said, Pop! Pop! The house is on fire. Now, mind you, it was 3 o'clock in the morning. We run out, and they said I ran out in my boxers. I don't remember being in my boxers, but that's what they said. The house was on fire back in Mark's room. He had left a candle the wind blew the curtain onto the, the candle. It went up the, the side of the, of the house into the attic. And the house was on fire. I thought Mark was still in the room. Everybody was out. I ran back in. My hair was singed. My face, amen, was, was scorched. Mary yells, come out. We got all the boys. Come out. I run out. We stand there in the winter with blankets on us across the street hoping that our house would be saved we told the boys to go into the church mary and i stood there on the curb watching our house that had our six biological kids pictures and memories go up in flames we stand there in my mind in my mind i said we're done this foster thing it's not for us. I begin to think that Mary wouldn't have done this if I hadn't talked her into it. I turned to her with tears running down my face, and I looked at her to, really to say, "Honey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I talked you into it. I'm sorry that our house is going up. I'm sorry." She looked up at me with a smile on her face, and she said, hey. I said, yes. She said, let's go to Walmart. I'm thinking, (laughs) Walmart? She said, yes. The boys got to go to school, and we got to go to work, and we got to get this, and we got to get that. So she walks off. So I'm standing on the curb, and the girl's going down the sidewalk. Three o'clock in the morning. So I follow her. We go in to get the boys. We all have blankets. We, going in, we, go, to, we go to Walmart and like Indians, we're walking behind each other like this. <laughs> Christian Life for Orphans heard me tell the story and they called it Walmart love. I don't know what Walmart love is. But all I know is that night when the house was burned down, we valued the lives of our sons that were engrafted into our family more than we did, amen, the lumber that was burning with fire. We, we didn't understand it. We didn't know it. I didn't process it all. Mary probably did. So we had never told the story in three or four years after the boys had gone. We had never told the story. And Diego, Diego was doing a rap deal. And in doing that rap, he said, before I do my song, I got to tell y'all something. And it was a large group, looks about like you guys, and they were there to hear our story so they can become foster parents. And Diego said, I got to tell you something. We burnt their house down. <laughs> you don't say that when you're trying It's just so, so Mary said, oh my goodness, no, no. But this is what he said, that we didn't know the rest of the story. That that, that next day, they didn't go to class. The coach allowed them to stay in the gym. And let me tell you why they didn't go to class. And Diego was telling the story. He said, we didn't go to class because we knew that the caseworker was gonna to come to school and pick us up like they'd done many times before, and we're embarrassed, and everybody knew we were foster kids, and they were gonna do it while we we're at school, and we didn't want that to happen. So that evening, as always, I went out to the to the football field to get them. Coach said, Well, they're in the gym. Well, I thought they were in the gym because, you know, the trauma of losing their clothes or whatever. I thought that's why they were in the gym. But they were in the gym because they didn't know that we were in it forever. That we were their family forever. Forever that we were not going to let any kind of trauma, any kind of thing, separate us from the love we have for them that the Father showed us. So God began to deal with with, with us in this process of who we were as ambassadors. What was our message to the body of Christ? How can the orphan crisis around the world change? It can change if the church realized three things. In Texas, it's called conservatorship. I don't know if it's called conservatorship or wardship here or not. Uh, for as, as child protective services, amen, going in and removing the kids and the kids become wards of the state. I don't know if it's wardship here, but in Texas, it's called conservatorship. I thank God for Child protective services. I thank God for the police department and all those who are who are really assignments from God as angels and messengers of peace. I thank God for them. I thank God for the CPS workers because they catch it when anything goes wrong, no matter what it is. They get bombarded within the media. They need to be celebrated instead of being blasted because everything happens. They're underpaid, underappreciated, and, and devalued. But I want you to know, I believe this church values all the workers of child protective services. <laughs> our, our, our goal then was to make sure they under, the church understood conservatorship. The state became the legal parent because a parent defaulted on their job. But let me tell you the church's responsibility. The church's responsibility is to become stewards. So stewardship is for the church, conservatorship for the state, but stewardship because God has called us according to James one twenty-seven, that says pure and undefiled religion. Hallelujah. That God our fathers accept is to care for the orphans and the widow. Care for them. God said that is the mandate for the church. Every church has greeters. And I, boy, we were greeted by some friendly folk today. They me want to put my membership here. Every church has, has, has janitors. And that's great because, boy, it's a beautiful place. But were they mandated in Scripture? Does every church have an orphan care ministry? Was it mandated in Scripture? Maybe we need to go back and read our Bible. Maybe we need to go back and see what the call of God is for the church to rise up and stand up and say, we're going to be the church for the children. So the state has conservatorship. The church should have stewardship. The community should have ownership. Why? Because when those kids age out of care, where are they going? Back to the community from which they come. We either take care of them now or we'll be taken care of them for the rest of their lives. Conservatorship, stewardship, ownership ought to make a good partnership. You get some fried chicken and you have some Fellowship. God is calling us to a place for us to move in transformation. If all the orphans in the world formed their own country, they would be amongst the 10th largest nation in the world. If all of the orphans... But let me tell you something, church. No child should be left an orphan. Just like God says, no child of God will be an orphan. Jesus said, I'm coming back because I go to prepare a place for you and I. And where he is, we're going to be. What if the church says to every orphan in this county, we are preparing a place for you to where we are. That's where you're going to be. My name is Aaron Blake, and I endorse this message. <laughs> God bless you. I love you. And i have not changed my mind about it. Praise God.